You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, this is Robert Wright. One thing I like about the conversations I have here on The Wright Show is that they help me think and write. They've informed the books and many of the articles I've written over the past 15 years. Now, lately, most of my writing has been for my newsletter, the Non-Zero Newsletter. It covers the kinds of topics you see on the show. Politics, foreign policy, psychology, philosophy, spirituality, how to avoid the apocalypse, things like that. So if you enjoy The Right Show, chances are pretty good that you'll enjoy the newsletter. It's free, and all you have to do to get it is go to nonzero.org and sign up. So I suggest that you hit pause, go sign up, and then hit play. Thanks. Hi, Richard. Hi, Bob. How you doing? Very well. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Richard Vague. Um, you've been with us a few times, actually. Uh, we've talked about a couple of your books. One of them, A Brief History of Doom, 200 Years of Financial Crises. Uh, before that, we talked about your book, The Next Economic Disaster, why it's coming and how to avoid it. People may already be guessing why I want to talk to you right now because a lot of us would like to know if we're uh, on the precipice of, a, of another economic disaster that will usher in an era of doom. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about. I, I should um, I should add that you have a long history in the banking business. You uh, co-founded and ran a couple of credit card companies. I think at, at one point uh, your company was the largest issuer of Visa cards in the known universe um, you also, you're a venture capitalist now, managing partner in Gabriel Investments, uh, and, um, and you have a, a, a number of other, uh, roles you can, you can either mention or not as you see fit. Is this enough? Um, you do publish Delancey Place, the newsletter that people should sign up for. Long standing. It's, it's, it's venerable, I would say, right? Venerable. It, it, uh, every day brings people a, a, a reading, a selection from, uh, an interesting book. Uh, and such is non-zero. Such is non-zero in the distant past. <laughs> oh my gosh. Who wrote that? That was 20 years ago. Let's don't go there. What, was um, it only 20 years ago? <laughs> yeah. It seems like, um, I mean, you know, it's funny how a pandemic stretches, stretches time out. I want to, um, before we get started, let me ask about that. How are you faring? Now, you're in Philadelphia, which has fared better than, say, New York amid the pandemic, right? It's It's been tough in Pennsylvania generally. And, uh, you know, we're, we're getting along. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, why don't we start out by reviewing how we got to the current economic moment. Um, so the pandemic, the initial economic news from the pandemic was what is called a supply shock kind of china's factories closed uh i think in retrospect that was far from being the biggest uh, shock delivered to the system right because the, the next thing was that when we started closing economies partly down in the united states and europe elsewhere uh, we got what's called a demand uh shock uh suddenly people weren't buying things they used to buy in response to that, the government has stepped in uh, and is injecting money uh, in one way or another 
into the economy and I think what may be a completely unprecedented scale. You can, you can, you can tell us whether it is or not, but in any event, that in itself has brought a new set of concerns, um, you know, as to how long that can be continued without having its own negative consequences and, and so on. So we're period, we're in a period of massive economic uncertainty, uh, and I think anxiety. Uh, does, does, uh, so far, does that seem accurate to you? That's reasonably accurate, Bob. <laughs> okay. Well done. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Now, um, what is the thing, you know, and I should add that, uh, one thing you've written about and focused on in the two books we talked about is the role of debt and excessive debt in ushering in bad economic, uh, times, which is a concern Right now, again, people are wondering, is the government incurring too much debt? Uh, so you'll have a special kind of expertise um, to bring to bear on that. But um, why don't we just – I just want to start by asking you, what are you most worried about right now? Uh, the collapse in GDP. And you know, GDP, if you think about it in its simplest terms, is just spending. So if our GDP was 21 trillion, that means there was 21 trillion in spending annually in the United States. And that is collapsing because people are staying at home and aren't able to get out and spend. And, you know, some economists have, have estimated that in this quarter, uh, that collapse could be as much as 50%. I think the estimates range anywhere from about 20% to about 50% in this quarter alone. Now that's that's a trillion dollars or two trillion dollars in reduced spending. That's hard to recover from. Is is that uh, well? First of all, that is in the absence of the government stimulus. That's what would happen, or that's what they think will happen in spite of the government stimulus. That's what they believe will happen in spite of the government stimulus. And that's, is that completely unprecedented in uh, U.S., modern U.S. economic history going back to the Great Depression, that sharp a fall off in GDP? It's virtually without precedent. You know, in the Great Depression, accumulatively from 1929 to 1933, there was about a 46% decline in spending. You know, what these economists are saying is we're going to get a number that approaches that uh, within a couple of months. So you said the raw number is what? How much of a drop off in GDP? Today or back then? Uh, no, now. <clears throat> now that we can anticipate in the. Well, the president of the St. Louis Fed said estimated uh, 50% in this quarter. In this quarter. And we. Yeah. J.P. Morgan's economist, I believe, estimated 34% in this quarter. And that is, uh, now is that a, <clears throat> but isn't that about as much as the government is injecting in the near term in the economy in one sense? And I'm talking about the fiscal stimulus alone, like, like the 2.2 trillion, which was just supplemented like today or this week with another uh, half a trillion. Um, I mean, isn't that, the, the, uh, that comparable to the, um, well, you're saying that you're saying even after that, you, you, they're estimating the um, you know, it's it's hard to assess because timing matters immensely. Yeah. So if the government uh, had 
$349 billion in small business loans, for example, which was meant to allow companies to continue to keep people on the payroll <clears throat> and thus continue spending, um, many of those checks still haven't gone out. Many mm-hmm. of those applications has have yet to be processed. So, you know, it it could it could lag several months. That matters in economics immensely. Okay. And what is your assessment of the of the kind of bailout package we've seen so far? Like the initial two point two trillion, the, the 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 new half a trillion. How how well do you think that money is being spent? What would you change if you could? You know, I have, uh, you know, I divide the the effort into that made by the Federal Reserve and that made by Congress. The Federal Reserve is basically supporting existing debt in the marketplace. Um, liquidity is what folks uh, refer to it as. <clears throat> I think the Fed has done a spectacular job. They have done more in a month or two than they did in a year to two years in the 08 crisis. It's as if the 08 crisis were a dress rehearsal for what Mm. they're doing now. They're not only doing more, but they're doing it more broadly across more types of debt. Uh, You know, it's municipal debt, commercial paper, corporate bonds, uh, the full spectrum. So I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised and appreciative for what the Fed is doing. Congress is doing more than I would have expected. You know, with a Republican-controlled Senate, I was skeptical about how much they could do and how quickly. They've done a lot. But even with what's being, you know, rumored to be done, you know, today and tomorrow, you know, the finalization of this additional tranche of support, you know, we probably have only done about half what needs to be done. And... And what about uh, the nature of the spending uh, in terms leaving aside the aggregate amount of the congressionally authorized spending? Um, is there any adjustment you would make in terms of how it's being distributed among small business, among individual households and so on? Well, it, it, it's it's weighted less towards household than I would wish if I had a magic wand. I would have allocated more of it directly to households. <clears throat> I think that a one-time check to households uh, isn't nearly as powerful as a sustained level of support to households, a monthly check. You know, there's a number of countries in Europe that are actually stepping in and picking up the payroll of the companies in those countries. Uh, that is a much better approach, in my view. Monthly checks would be better. A one-time check of $1,200, it's welcome, it's not enough. Of course, one thing about that, even the $1,200, a lot of it goes to people who don't particularly need it, right? As I understand it, there was a little bit of so-called means testing in the sense that there was a limit on how high your income would could be if you were uh, going to get that, but it was very high. I, I, last I heard, it was like 100000 for individuals and 200000 for a couple, Right. Your, your income had to be that high for you to not get the twelve hundred dollars, whereas your average couple that made one hundred and eighty thousand last year, they're not tremendously needy. Right. And whereas there are other needier people who only got twelve hundred and could have used the extra money. Am I, is that wrong? 
You're right. The, there are any number of issues around the subject of fairness. You know, you and I could pick this program apart with justification all day long, and we'll continue to be able to do that. But the issue of time matters immensely. You know, every day and week and month that goes by that spending is depressed as it is right now, businesses get damaged irreparably. And it makes the path back uh, that much harder. So, you know, if I were going to make a trade-off between speed and fairness, I would pick speed. And you would be spending, what, at least twice as much as Congress is spending now? You know, who, who knows what the exact number is, but my, my rough sense of it, you know, spending, you know, I spend a lot of time in these numbers is, we're about a trillion or two short still. And a lot of that right now is support that's going to be needed for the states and municipal governments. There's going to be a crisis in uh, supporting education, health care, and payroll itself in states and cities uh, very quickly. Now, it's rumored that there's going to be $500 billion. Uh, uh, Congress is going to pass a bill for $500 billion to support states and cities. Uh, that number is going to be welcome. It's probably not sufficient. Okay. Um, and, of course, states and cities, uh, unlike the federal government, they can't just print money, right? There, there are various constraints they face. I mean, they can they can issue debt, although I gather some states are, constitu- are prohibited by their own constitutions from not balancing the budget uh, each, each year, uh, as I understand it. But anyway, it, it's... Uh, the, the states and, and municipalities are in a much tighter fix than the federal government is in principle, right? Without question. Not just in principle, in reality. So, you yeah. know, the only entity that can create uh, new money is the federal, you know, federal government in this scenario. So states, that, sorry. No, go ahead. States and cities are hamstrung. So, I mean, just take the, the example that's uh, most conspicuous to me because I live, you know, within commuting distance of New York. I was I was there, you know, a month ago, I guess. Um, and the subways there, I mean, m- massive revenue shortfall now because so few people are riding them. Um, and yet, uh, you know, if they cut back commensurately on the number of trains to save money, that's bad as a public health matter because you'd actually like the density of passengers on each subway car to drop right now. And, and that's a, that's a hugely expensive system. They take in an amazing amount of revenue, uh, in, in, in good times and still have trouble, uh, balancing the, the books. And, and that's just one example of, you know, and I haven't heard anybody talking about what the, what the federal government needs to do to step in for, uh, local, public transportation, but I would assume this is a problem in lots of places. It's just one small problem, right? It's it's a great example, and it characterizes really the entire system. And, you know, all of these states and local governments are facing decisions in the immediate future on what to keep open, how to shut down, how to reopen, uh, and funding is going to be required for all of that. And the the scale of the the shortfall in budget as I understand it, is unprecedented already and could get a lot worse. Um, and then to, I guess, further compound things, uh, you know, when they when they open up, quote, open up the economy, 
which some states are starting to do uh, almost even as we speak. I think Georgia is starting to do some of that, notwithstanding resistance from some um, urban mayors. The, um, you know, you may get, I guess you may see a, a little bit of a burst of pent-up demand. Maybe there will be people who are who had been put off buying a car for the last six weeks, and they're going to go out and do that. But by and large, do you agree that we will not see, once, once any pent-up demand is unleashed, we will not see anything like a return to full economic activity, right? Because there are going to be a lot of people who still don't feel comfortable going to a restaurant and so on and so on. Well, that's absolutely true. But what is also true is the governments aren't going to let them go back to, you know, full participation in the economy right away. Mm -hmm. The plans that are being put together are staged plans. Uh, there'll still be all sorts of limitations on, um, you know, people be wearing masks. Employers will be asked to monitor things, take employees' temperatures. Uh, there'll be spacing requirements. So, you know, it's 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 really impossible for the economy to snap fully back anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's a global problem. To, for just the last, before we get into the analysis of what, you know, uh, uh, and, and tap into your particular expertise uh, more specifically, it's a global, it's a global thing. Just one more, one more ray of doom I want to shed on this is like, uh, you know, right? I mean, we just haven't seen anything like this. Well, it's interesting. It's going to be, uh, important and fascinating to look at how different countries fare. China, as you pointed in your introductory comments, China is, is almost, is, you know, they may not be all the way back. They may not be all the way back for a long time, but they're a long way back already. I know a, a number of companies that depend on China for manufactured, uh, components. Uh, China got a week and a half behind, but is current now with those particular companies. Uh, that may not be representative of the whole country, but it's indicative of how quickly things were restored there. The number of deaths and the number of cases, even if there's some underreporting going on, looks to be orders of magnitude less than the United States. So, you know, what did they do differently? You know, we may find there there are any number of differences, including uh, differences in uh, biological makeup of folks. You know, there's a theory right now that Italians or Mediterranean folks are missing an enzyme that makes them particularly susceptible. So we may find differences like that, but we are also going to find differences in how governments manage the process. And if you if you just look at the surface evidence at the moment, China seems to have had less damage and be getting back more quickly. Sweden's going to be fascinating to watch. As mm. you know, they didn't have the level of lockdown that other countries had. Uh, they they have a, a, a little bit more in the number of cases compared to their Scandinavian uh, peers, but on a per capita basis, they don't look like they're worse than the United States. So, you know, there's going to be enormous lessons learned that are going to be critical to learn, you know, for the presumed next pandemic some number of years in the future. Mm -hmm. 
And there are people who would say that China had an advantage, maybe both in terms of the system of governance, authoritarian, and and culturally, in terms of the whole tradition of, I mean, for example, these face masks are more common in East Asia, uh, have been for a long time, and just in, 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 the, in the normative tradition of compliance with communal kind of, uh, you know, imperatives, uh, there, there are people who think maybe our culture just isn't well-suited to really everybody getting on board in a time like this. I don't know. That may very well be the case. So um, let's get into, you know, one, one, one constraint on government spending right now is concern that there is such a thing as too much government spending, that you shouldn't casually incur a huge um, deficit. Now, as, as you said there's, there's there's two different kinds of things going on there is you know the fiscal stimulus from congress which is uh deficit spending that ultimately involves incurring debt right and then there is the uh monetary side of just injecting money into the system which also as i understand it always traditionally at least incurs uh entails the uh incurring of um Debt. I mean, maybe we should put that discussion off because I know you have some kind of um, innovative. Uh, you know, you you have some of your own ideas about to what extent you can get around uh, some of the some of the traditional roadblocks on the monetary side. But but um, is it true, broadly speaking, to say that look, whether it's fiscal spending or or monetary uh, support, you're always incurring the government is always incurring more debt. Uh, well, that's been the case. <laughs> it's been the case for a while now. So, uh, you know, I, I'm going to make two separations here. The first separation I'm going to make is between what the Federal Reserve is doing and what Congress is doing. And the Federal Reserve is supporting existing debt mm-hmm. and expects to be repaid in many cases very quickly quickly being months or, you know, no more than a year or two for all the money that it's ex- extending. Mm-hmm. So that's debt support. That's not net new spending in the economy. It is taking that's, over debt that already existed and saying we are now ultimately responsible. That's right. Okay. And uh, Congress is doing things that are spending, that gives you money that you can go spend at a restaurant. And they're two very different things. They're two important things, but they're two very different things. And it's really this latter thing, this supportive spending, that is the most directly responsible for the requirement that the government issue more treasury securities to fund to fund the, these things. The congressional side. And the reason this distinction matters, well, to you especially, is because one theme in these two books of yours that we mentioned is that the thing to worry about, uh, if you're asking, is there, go- is, does economic doom, uh, lie ahead? Is the total amount of debt in the private sector and the public sector? And you say that traditionally there's probably been too much emphasis on, on the public side, that is the government side of the debt. Too much concern about that. Not that it doesn't matter. It's just that, relatively speaking, it has tended to be a smaller, amount of money than private debt. What matters is aggregate, you know, if societies incur more and more aggregate debt in the private sector, plus uh, the 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 uh, 
the public sector, ultimately, there is a reckoning, uh, right? Is that a fair summary of your thesis? Well, I, I would take it a step further. And, and I think that the difference between public debt and private debt is very important and profound. And frankly, I don't have much concern about the increased level of public debt that's being issued. And um, instead, I have a deep level of concern about the private debt out there. So can we t- if we can take those one at a time briefly. So let me, um, let me make sure I understand. You're saying that a dollar of public debt is less dangerous long-term than a dollar of private debt? Uh, by far. And in fact, might not be dangerous at all. Okay. So the government can create its own additional money. So it, it, it can pay back debt that's issued with new money that it creates. So there's not much in the way of a practical constraint on the amount that it can do. The most recent number, the December 31st number in the United States, was government debt to GDP was 106%. In Japan, it's 238%. So I, I view that as kind of an illustration of the amount of headroom that we have in issuing additional government debt. Now, historically, over the last several decades, folks have believed that the consequence of issuing more government debt is inflation. That, you know, there's still folks that think the amount of debt that we're issuing um, out of the Treasury is going to create inflation or hyperinflation or the like. We can't find examples of that uh, when we study economies. We, we have a database of 47 countries. We have debt records going back decades, if not centuries. We can't find examples of where uh, that's been an issue. And when, in, you say, when you say we, you mean the researchers who uh, gathered the data that your books are based on. You're talking about your collected database. That's right. Uh-huh. And instead, we have the opposite concern. We think that the more debt actually causes interest rates to go lower. We think there's a causal relationship between more government debt and lower interest rates. And we see that very clearly, frankly, since 1981. You know, that was the the point at which debt really began to explode uh, in the United States and, frankly, in the world. And interest rates have been coming down for that entire 40-year period. Our expectation is that interest rates will continue to go further down as a result of the debt we're creating now. Now, that is counter-conventional wisdom, right? Because I remember during the Clinton years, uh, the argument for fiscal austerity, the argument for getting closer to balancing the budget and not spending, quote, irresponsibly, was that if the government didn't have to get into the debt market in a big way, that would keep interest rates down, right? I mean, the, the the whole the bond market was like the boogeyman that 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 prevented uh, federal spending. Am, uh, is is that right? So 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 what you're saying is the opposite of the conventional wisdom. Am I right yes. about that? Yes. Okay. Well, that would be that would be nice. I'd love to believe that. <laughs> well, um, yeah. If you just go chart, it's easy to do. If you just go chart interest rates, whether they're long, short, or uh, medium-term interest rates, 
uh, from about 1981 to the present, and you graph debt to GDP, and you put those two things on the same graph, you'll see there's a virtually inverse relationship between the two. And that's not just true in the United States. That's true in Europe from, I, I believe, about the same time. It's true in Japan. It's true in China. Japan, you know, Japan at 238% government debt to GDP has had interest rates of zero for some time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you'd be really, really hard pressed to find examples of a sovereign country that issues its own currency and doesn't have a lot of debt denominated in a foreign currency, which is, you know, a, a different problem that usually little countries have. Uh, you, you can't find exam- counterfactual examples. So, and the, the debt that I just mentioned really constitutes about 70 or 80% of all the debt in the world. Mm-hmm. And there's been this pronounced inverse correlation. Well, what you're saying is, I guess, roughly consistent with what we've seen so far in this crisis. Of course, there are a lot of things at play here, ranging from collapse for the demand of oil to God knows what. But the fact is, interest rates have dropped as the government has committed to incurring um, more and more debt. So we certainly haven't seen anything inconsistent with your perspective, right? Yeah, and they're in there. I would predict more of the same. You know, I okay, think negative well, it. Okay, well, let's put uh, my money where your mouth is. Uh, I'm trying to decide whether to refinance my mortgage. Um, would you recommend that I wait? <laughs> well, um, I think rates are pretty low. You know, in Denmark, Mortgage rates briefly went negative. Mm-hmm. That's you know, what I want. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that, that we won't see uh, more examples of that. Uh, so I wouldn't discourage you from refinancing, but I would suggest to you, even if you do refinance in a couple of years, you're probably going to have another chance to refinance hmm. at even more advantageous rates. So you don't think I should pan- be panic into doing it like today? I, I'll have time. I'll have. Today. I think you'll have time. Now, okay. by the way, by the way, I would I would say to you that uh, neg- uh, low interest rates are not without their own consequence. Mm-hmm. And the consequence uh, when we look across uh, economies is that low interest rates tend to exacerbate inequality. And why is that? Well, because low interest rates create these asset bubbles that we all talk about, you know, rising real estate values, rising you know, over time, we were like, obviously like two, in the, 2008. There had been in the, these bubbles had been inflated through overly casual extension of mortgages and so on, and and, and the, so that was an asset bubble that that burst. Is that an example? Yeah, any low there tends to be you know an inverse correlation between interest rates and asset values. The lower interest rates are, the more support there are, there is for stock market values and real estate values and and the like. And it's the top 1% or the top 10% or what have you that tend to hold a disproportionate number of assets. So interest rates drive up the net worth. You know, we got a special period now mm-hmm. where all mm-hmm. asset values are going to collapse for a while. But taken over the broad spectrum of multiple, you know, years or decades, low interest rates tend to prop up asset values. And that, uh, that tends to help the haves more mm-hmm. than the have-nots. Right, because the haves are more likely to have stock portfolios and so on. And then when the crash comes and the bailout comes, it is not infrequently the case that the haves 
get a disproportionate amount of the relief. Well, right? which is part of the criticism that's already occurring about the bailout packages that we've we've seen. And you think so, there's at least some validity to that? I know uh, you think speed is of the essence, but if you had time to really do it carefully, you think you would recalibrate uh, in keeping with that critique? Yeah, there, there's any number of things you would do differently if you had time. But, you know, I compare it to the, the quick preparations that were necessary in, in our major wars. You know, there's mm-hmm. you know, countless examples of unfairness and uh, uh, fraud and, you know, wealth being created for the fortunate few, you know, in, in World War One, World War Two, the Civil War, you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that doesn't mean we shouldn't have ramped up quickly uh, in each of those wars. Of course we should have, and mm-hmm. of course we should now. That doesn't mean that the criticisms that we're seeing are not or don't have merit. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in terms of your somewhat maverick view that uh, government spending and the uh, attendant incurring of government debt is not going to increase interest rates are, are, are more and more people seeing it your way i mean i knew uh, maybe if this is re- related to this thing called modern monetary theory which also says you shouldn't well that says you shouldn't uh worry so much about expanding the money supply i guess on the uh on the kind of monetary side maybe to the extent that i understand it but but i guess two questions first of all are you seeing more people moving toward your point of view, and then secondly, what is this uh, modern monetary theory thing? So, yeah, there are a coterie of uh, economists that are, you would call heterodox economists, that, you know, share many of the views that I hold. Many of those folks are folks I collaborate with. Um, It's still outside the mainstream, but I think the present circumstances are causing a lot of folks to examine these theories a lot more closely. So I think the the trend towards the view that I hold will continue to increase. <clears throat> Modern monetary theory, I almost view as a description rather than a theory. It's almost a technical description of how the United States Treasury and the Federal Reserve actually do work. So it is actually technically true that when the federal government incurs debt, that it creates an offsetting asset in the private sector, which is increased wealth. That's just a technical, you know, that's, that's, you can go, you and I can go do the entries together. When the federal government spends, it ends up in the pockets of the private sector and ends up on the balance sheets of the private sector. Now, now we're talking about the kind of congressional authorized, congressionally authorized stimulus that. That's that, right. Yeah. Now, the money has now, to go somewhere. Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, these guys, the modern monetary theorist guys do a lot of really careful work in an, and they almost view the Fed and the Treasury as, you know, two sides to the same coin. Mm-hmm. That it's, that it's all part and parcel because as you know, it's the, the central bank buys and sells government securities. That's kind of how money enters the system. The, tr- the Treasury actually keeps its checking account at the Federal Reserve. So if you get a if you get a check if you get a check from the Treasury, it's drawn on the Federal Reserve mm-hmm. and so forth and so on. So they view that operation all as the same thing, which is money creation, and they accurately describe 
the fact that spending at the government level creates private sector wealth. Mm-hmm. So um, when, to just drill down on that, that on one part of what you said, so, so when the, the, the Fed, quote, creates money, uh, they're actually um, acquiring debt. And so, so I guess there's a couple of ways they could, in principle, do it. I mean, they, they can, they can um, in effect, they can assume responsibility for new treasury bonds that are being created. Uh, that's one thing that can happen. Is that right so far? Well, there, there, there's two things that I think about generally. One of them is the treasury sells debt to a bank, because you know that's the way it works in the United States, is a primary dealer bank would buy the debt and the proceeds of that sale go into the treasury's account at the Federal Reserve. So okay. that's that's kind of what we think of most often as the creation of money. The other thing that happens is the Federal Reserve can inject more money into banks by buying the treasury securities that those banks own mm. and depositing the proceeds of that purchase into those banks' checking accounts at the Federal Reserve. Okay. So if the, 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 the Robert Wright National Bank had a billion-dollar treasury securities... Which we do, by the way. And I, oh. and I, bought, and I bought those f- from you. I would deposit the proceeds... Enter Robert Wright's account at the Federal Bank's account at the Federal Reserve, and all of a sudden, Robert Wright has a billion dollars in cash, if you will. And part of the theory is that Robert Wright's then supposed to use that to lend. Uh, that's you know, okay. Doesn't really work that way, but that generally is the thought. So, so one reason I ask is because I read somewhere that in this round of kind of monetary support. The Fed is acquiring um, corporate debt, including even junk bonds. Is that wrong? So, uh, so that's kind of a separate type of activity. But they're doing that too. They're saying, "Okay, we will assume responsibility for this dubious loan that this this company, um, you know, this money that this company that's now on shaky ground borrowed." Right. Uh- the Federal Reserve historically has just bought treasuries mm-hmm. from banks. In the great financial crisis, they extended that to buying mortgages. In 2008? Right. 2009, 2010, 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, they bought mortgages. So they, I think, currently have about a trillion four in mortgages on their books as of December 31st. Mm-hmm. So that was... You know, a massive departure from prior practices. What they're doing now is, and, and that provides support for that debt, provides, provides a buyer for that debt. It also uh, provides, a, restores or maintains liquidity in the market. So what the Fed is doing now is that they've extended it beyond mortgages to commercial paper, to state and municipal securities, uh, to corporate bonds. So it's really breathtaking, you know, concerning to some, uh, uh, reassuring to others that they're coming in and doing this. But yes, all of a sudden, there's a lot more types of assets. Now, as it relates to highly leveraged debt, 
the junk bonds that you just mentioned. I don't know exactly what is occurring there. You know, part of what's occurring, I suspect, is that the government's making uh, equity investment in those firms as well as supporting debt. But that's a little bit of what's not known at the moment is exactly what the structure of those are. I will tell you that private debt in total is $32 trillion. It's probably higher than that now. And highly leveraged debt is only about $1 trillion out of that $32 trillion. You know, the mortgage market is $10 trillion. The commercial real estate market is $5 trillion, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the so-called junk bond portion of that is really a small piece of the overall puzzle. But I don't know exactly what the structures are there, and that's part of what people are worried about and uh, uh, are, are suggesting might be uh, lacking sufficient oversight and things are being done there that, you know, smack of cronyism and what have you. Uh, I simply don't know. Everything that's being done there might be being handled perfectly. It might okay. not be being handled perfectly. Uh, that's what we'll find out over time. Okay, and though I'm sure you'd be against the cronyism, you are, in principle, among the less alarmed, I assume, because you you think that moving private debt into the the government's hands is a is is a good thing and is less alarming than some people think. It's a te- it's a temporary thing, presumably, and it is less concerning to me. Even though I understand there will be issues of fairness around debt that is not as creditworthy. You know, remember one of my statements was the Fed only does this when it expects to be repaid in a short period of time, mm-hmm. which would, you know, certainly be true for most, you know, you know, highly rated corporate bonds and state bonds and um, things like that. Once you get into highly leveraged debt, it's a totally different equation. I hope and expect that some of the structuring, you know, that it is taking the character more of like what was done for the the automobile companies back in 2009 and 2010 that the government's making an investment on on advantageous terms on behalf of the taxpayer. Mhm. Okay. Now, all of this uh, recently led you to be involved in a kind of indirect exchange with a journalist Matt Tybee. Uh, this was, uh, it took the form of an interview with you on the well-known blog, Naked Capitalism. Um, and, uh, it wasn't by Matt Tybee, but it was, uh, the interviewer directed the conversation, uh, toward his concern. He's, you know, he's a very well-known, uh, very good journalist, uh, was at Rolling Stone. Now he's focusing on his, uh, his newsletter, um, uh, instead, but, um, he uh and this is kind it's kind of ironic because he is well to the left um i i think he was probably a bernie sanders supporter and yet he is concerned uh about i guess the excessive incurring of debt by the government which was traditionally more of a conservative concern it was it was traditionally the left was saying oh loosen up relax we can afford it. And the right was saying, no, for whatever reason, he's concerned. And I got to say that that's kind of my instinct, too, just because I had always assumed there's got to be some limit. I mean, we can't do magic, right? We can't just, you know, like to take the extreme case, I guess, you couldn't have a complete economic shutdown 
and just have the government keep issuing money forever because ultimately the goods and services that we enjoy from an economy, the food on the table, uh, the, the, the pumping of the gasoline for our cars, ultimately that depends on the goods and services that we ourselves provide in a certain sense, right? In other words, an economy consists of a bunch of people doing work and exchanging the fruits of that work with each other ultimately. And, and, and the work has to happen, right? <laughs> I mean, in the long run, uh, maybe you can get through a shutdown, but you can't, it just seems to me it would violate fundamental uh, principles of the physical laws of the universe if you could do that, like, forever. And so there must be some limit on on how much the government, uh, on the you know, can do of its own accord. In any event, Matt Tybee perhaps shares that intuition, or maybe he doesn't, but for whatever reason, he's concerned. Does this, does what I'm saying make sense to you, first of all, as like a baseline concern, source of concern about some degree of government spending being ultimately coming back to haunt us. Um, and then secondly, what do you want to say about this, this exchange you got into um, on uh, naked capitalism? So before I respond to that, I just want to make sure and note that we haven't yet discussed private debt. Right. Which to me is the uh, and, and the and the ultimate need of households and businesses to pay on that private debt, you know, interest and principal repayment and the like. Okay. Which I view as the biggest, one of the biggest issues of all as we think about the next several years. So, you know, hopefully we can come back to that. You know, I have, um, I admire Matt Tybee and his work. Um, if I'm if I'm reading Matt correctly, I think his concern falls into two parts. One of those parts is the one you just articulated, which you know, isn't there a limit out there somewhere to what the government can do and what the Federal Reserve can do? You know, part of the criticism has been, you know, the Federal Reserve was only 900 billion in size in 2007. You know it. It's got up to close to five trillion in size and could conceivably be 10 trillion in size w- within the next year or two. So, you know, I think there's part of uh, Matt's comments, if I'm reading him correctly, have to do with that. And the other part of his comments, and I think really the, the, the part that he spends more time and energy uh, uh, thinking about is uh, the potential for fraud and corruption and cronyism and the like. So I'm going to address those separately. I think his uh, comments about uh, the potential for abuse within this have all sorts of merit. And if something that we should be examining today and tomorrow and the next day, and I think if there's any difference here, it's that, I feel speed is of the essence. I continue to feel speed is of the essence. The new tranche of SBA loans, which are about are going to be about three hundred and twenty billion, we need to deploy those quickly. It is hard for banks to deploy that money. Uh, there's the Main Street lending program, uh, which is for the, the medium size uh, businesses. You know, I believe, um, and that's going to take even more work for banks to deploy. This is going to be hard work. It has to be done quickly. So, you know, I'm in the camp that speed is 
the most important thing now, but I don't discount for a moment uh, the concerns that Matt has expressed about uh, potential abuse. Now, this, the separate issue, though, is how much debt can the government uh, issue? How large can the Fed be? Um, and I would agree that there has to be there there has to be more thinking about what the limits are about this. And if you read the writings of Randall Ray, who is kind of written more than anyone else about this. He has the textbook on modern monetary theory. He points out these issues himself. You know, he points out one of the issues, for example, is what does it do to your, you know, your the value of your currency on the open market in exchange for other currencies? Um, so, you know, in theory, uh, issuing a lot of debt could mean that your exchange rate is is adversely affected. So he doesn't disagree with any thinking, you know, he, the need for more thinking around those areas. I agree with that too. All I'm saying is that that limit is not within our immediate horizon. So for example, the Federal Reserve even at 5 trillion or 10 trillion is going to be smaller as a percent of the United States GDP. <clears throat> then the Bank of Japan already is to Japan's GDP. Mm-hmm. I would put it in context. You know, we the Fed is you know let's call it six or seven trillion dollars right now. Um, the total size of financial assets in the United States is about a hundred ten trillion dollars. So that kind of puts it in context: seven trillion compared to a total. Uh, financial assets of 110 trillion. You know, we're, we're, we're not at a disproportionate size in the Fed. We could be over time. We're not today. And, and we're not in any foreseeable time frame. And I'll repeat what I said earlier. There are debt levels as of December 31st were 106% of GDP. Japan's at 238% of GDP and hasn't seen much, if anything, in the way of direct financial consequence for that. So we have capacity. Well, we have policy space, is I think what the economists say. We have policy space. We have the we have the latitude to do several trillion more without pressing up against any concerning limits. And I think we need to. Okay. So you you said we you alluded to private debt, but said we haven't um, you know really gotten into it as deeply as you'd like. What what else do you want to? say about that i mean again you are and you've got you've got this whole database uh that you you argue shows that you know if you want to know when economic collapse lies ahead historically you look at two things the absolute the, the level of debt relative to gdp and the recent rate of increase in in debt, the last few years, last five years of increase in debt. Um, I, I think the index you use is combined public and private debt. But in any event, you 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 think private debt is qualitatively a bigger problem. So I, I assume that as you look ahead, one thing you're concerned about now is the incurring of private debt by people who are in economic distress. 
now and you'd like to see the government do more to alleviate that and assume some of that burden or is or is that wrong in any event say say what you think needs to be said about private debt per se uh, in this context okay so first and foremost the expedient at the moment is getting cash in the hands of consumers and small businesses in any number of ways until we've stabilized things and restarted the economy. However, one of the things that was already true is that the private sector was lugging around a very high level of private debt already. So even before COVID-19, we were kind of towards the north end of what was a sustainable level of private debt. The more private debt you have, and private debt is the, your personal mortgage, it's the $100,000 loan your local restaurant has, it's all of those things added together. Private debt in 2000, I believe, was about 125% of GDP. Well, private debt as of December 31st was 150% of GDP. Private debt in 1950 was 50% of GDP. So in 1950, private debt levels were only one-third as much as they are today. So, and the more private debt you have, and I really do distinguish between private and government debt, because the government can print its own money, to use the phrase that's used. You and I can't print our own money, or we go to jail. So, so, so it's a different issue. Since private actors, people and businesses can't print their own money, they have to pay back debt out of income. And the more debt they carry, the slower the economy goes. It becomes a drag or a burden on the economy. So we were already at a point where it was somewhat of a drag on the economy. I believe that's the reason that our recovery after 08 was never as robust as economists kept hoping for, expecting. We were just carrying around too much private debt. So now we have a situation where a lot of folks are incurring more debt as an expedient to deal with this crisis, and their incomes are dropping. So you have a numerator effect and a denominator effect. And so, you know, Goodness knows what that 150 is going to turn into, that 150% private debt to GDP ratio is going to turn into. But I suspect it could get a lot higher over the next year or two. And we're going to have to deal with that. It's not something we need to deal with in April or May of this year. It'd be great if we could. I just don't think the political capacity is there. But over time, we're going to have to deal with it. Student debt is a huge problem in the United States. You know, I've, you know, I've talked about this, but I've gone around the country and talked to folks about this, and it's it's shocking to me how many families are impacted by burden. We need to provide some way. I've posited that maybe community service. You know, ten years of community service gets you out of your uh, your student debt obligation. Bernie Sanders obviously has posited something more bold than that. One way or the other, a, a type of for each type of debt, we're going to have to think about ways of creating relief. Okay, now you're so uh, 
one way or another, we need to move the, in effect, move the the debt from the private sector to the to the public sector to the government's books. Now, and and you are less concerned than some people about the the consequences again of of large government debt because, as you say, um, the government can print money now. Uh, tell me, I, I know from past conversations with you that that you have ideas uh, about maybe changing, in, in a sense, the way the government prints money. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but traditionally, again, when when the Fed injects money into the system, when there's monetary stimulus, the government is in one sense or another acquiring responsibility for debt, either treasury bills or or private debt. And I think you think that that's not strictly speaking necessary. There's a way the government could create money without incurring debt. So A, am I, am I right in characterizing your view that way? And B, is that related to your, your relative lack of concern about the, uh, incurring of, of government debt? In other words, you think that is the, uh, is going to be the, the escape hatch. Ultimately, this this uh, discovering that that we can print money without incurring debt. Well, and now you're talking about something that almost nobody talks about, discusses, or even thinks about. So I'm, I'm hesitant to even mention this because, to the extent somebody thinks that already that my theories are wrong, they're really going to have trouble with this one. But uh, here's the truth. Uh, Almost every, uh, almost all issuance of money involves the simultaneous creation of debt. So when the treasury, you know, when people talk about the treasury printing money or, uh, you know, they use these terms talking about creating money. In every situation folks are talking about an identical amount of debt is created at the same time. And that's both when the treasury issues debt and that when, that's when banks make loans. Which, as you know, banks making a loan is another another form of money creation, money creation out of thin air. But you know, when you when when Richard Vega, Robert Wright goes and borrows fifty thousand dollars from the bank, there's a fifty thousand dollar loan created, and there's fifty thousand dollars deposit made into our checking account at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect illustration of what I'm talking about. Money is always created with debt and by debt. Not a lot of folks think about that. Not a lot of folks get into the accounting entries around that. It happens to be the case. So it, it, it begs the question, particularly at the treasury level, is there a way to create money without simultaneously creating debt? And, you know, a, a few of us have put forward ideas for consideration in this regard. Uh, you know, you hear a bunch of folks, particularly in and around the MMT camp, who talk about the Treasury minting a trillion-dollar coin. I don't know if you've heard that. I hadn't heard of that, but I'm willing to own one. <laughs> so, but at any rate, it's 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 something on the right side of the Treasury's balance sheet that is not debt. And you know, we, we've seen examples of this in the past. We. You know, in the America's Revolutionary War, there were there was money that was literally printed that wasn't uh, correlated. And with what's that. the means of getting it into the system? You just hand it to lucky passers by, or what? No, it's a government spending. 
Oh, oh, so, oh I see. So it just goes to support the, the fiscal stimulus. I mean, there's a lot of you imprecise. You print the money to support. There's okay. a lot of very imprecise discussion around this. Once you kind of get anywhere near this such, this uh, discussion, folks start talking about helicopter money and you know, all these things that are very loosely defined. And I think that's uh, to the discredit of the, of the idea. Um, in this case, we're really talking about the Treasury uh, uh, getting a credit into their Fed account that isn't tied to debt. Is that, you know, it's almost tied to something the, I call it common money uh, in a paper I've written. Uh, but at any rate, it allows government spending to occur without the creation of additional Treasury securities. Mm-hmm. This is this is a discussion not too many people have, and it's 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 a pretty technical discussion. Now, even there too, I, my reflex would be okay. Even supposing you're right, this is a viable thing to do. Pro, government creating money without debt. There must, again, there must be some limit. It can't be like infinite magic, right? I mean, is my intuition correct there? <laughs> it could come back to haunt you at some point. Uh, in, in the case, I would argue that in the case of money that's created without debt, you do have a risk of inflation. So when I talk I about doing that, um, and, and it, it, there may not be a single person in the world that agrees with me on this point, but, uh, in the, in that case, you know, you saw that in the American Revolution. You saw that in a couple other cases where, so I think if you did something like that, it would need to be, very tightly circumscribed. There would be a certain amount of that you could do on a regular basis, but it would not be unlimited. It would be tightly defined. You know, for example, no more than 2% of GDP per annum, mm-hmm. no more than 25% of GDP in cumulatively. So, uh, so, you know, a lot more thinking needs to occur around that. But I tell you, with the amount of government debt that folks are starting to lug around, you know, the, in the United States, aggregate debt, this gets back to what you were talking about earlier, aggregate debt to GDP, government debt and private sector debt, and you probably need to throw in state municipal debt, is 250, 260, 270% of GDP. That's double what it was a couple of generations ago. In Japan, it's 400%. So thinking about how you ultimately dispose that debt and what those limits are is an area that is an area of thinking that needs a lot more development. Not too many people think about it. Okay. Now, if you, um, if you, if what you're facing, facing is a deflationary abyss, which happens sometimes, and you're concerned about deflation, then the constraint on this approach you're talking about wouldn't be much of a concern, right? Because an inflationary effect is what you want. So at that point, in theory, if you could calibrate it correctly, you would say print lots of money. I I think that that's correct. I think it's probably linear. You know, I think that, you know, you get X much inflation with this much of it and Y much inflation with or 2X inflation with 2X printing of it. Mm -hmm. Now, that leads us to the question of like what, should we worry more about at this particular juncture, inflation or deflation? We're seeing a lot of deflationary effects. I mean, first of all, when there's collapse of demand, that tends to be deflationary. Uh, you see that specifically in the oil markets right now. Um, on the other hand, there there are people, not you maybe, but there are people 
who who think that the government um, stimulus will tend to have a, a countervailing inflationary effect. I guess I guess I have two questions. A, what is the conventional mainstream thinking right now about the bigger problem? I assume that the bigger concern uh, in general is about deflation. In which case, your concern would be even deeper about deflation. But maybe a lot of people are are, are concerned about inflation. I mean, I mean, look in in the past, you know, in, in the way governments, re- the, the 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 aftermath of the Great uh, Depression led to, along with other factors, to be sure, hyperinflation in some right. I mean, Germany was suffering from hyperinflation at the time of the rise of the Nazi Party, I believe. In any event, that's been a a problem periodically in various countries. So what, um, correct anything I've said that's wrong and, and why don't you let me, uh, and, and then, and then, um, let us know what is, what is the conventional concern in terms of inflation versus deflation and what is your concern? So there's just been this perennial concern about inflation that you tend to read about regularly, no matter what, you know, inflation hasn't been, has it been a factor for 40 years in just about any developed country. The concern has been the opposite. You know, the European Central Bank, the Fed, hoping to get up to 2% inflation. Mm-hmm. So I think the concern about inflation has abated, but it hadn't disappeared. I mean, you, you, you can't get away from, you know, somebody writing about the, the specter or the boogeyman of inflation. Um, you know, somewhere at some point in time. I think right now all of the concerns should be about deflation. Inflation would be a nice problem to have at, at this point in time. Frankly, you're going to have a couple of disrupted supply issues in, you know, the food chain that'll create a little bit of that. That'll be temporary. Uh, all of our concern ought to be about uh, deflation at this point in time. And by the way, just... Just for um, clarity, the Germany's bout with hyperinflation incurred kind of 1922-ish, way before the Great Depression. It related to having to pay debt in a foreign currency, which, by the way, I think country all countries of all sizes should work hard to avoid having their debt denominated in another currency kind of mm-hmm. always ends up getting folks into trouble. It certainly did for those folks at that point in time. But uh, Germany's problems were deflation as well by the time you got to the 1930s. Oh, I see. And the inflation had to do partly with the reparations imposed on, I mean, the, the, the debt they were paying had to do with the reparations imposed after World War I? Uh, that was a big part of it. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah, and, and of course, if there's deflation, I mean, that hurts different people uh, differently. You know, people who owe money are then um, in trouble, right? If you've got a fixed mortgage payment, inflation helps you because, relatively speaking, the mortgage payment is less and less. But if there's deflation, you're screwed, which means that um, deflation is going to hurt a lot of Common folk, you might say, uh, even going fairly high up the income ladder, maybe. I don't know. But but that, that, that just becomes a huge problem, right? Yeah, it's really exactly the same thing that we were talking about just a moment ago, which is uh, it, it, I think of it as a denominator effect. 
Mm-hmm. You know, your debt stays the same and your income shrinks. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's tough. That's a tough equation. Uh, yeah. that's, uh, you know, expressed in economics is called the debt deflation theory. Now, is the conventional view as well as yours right now that, yeah, deflation is probably more likely than inflation where, where we stand now? I mean, it's not just the thinking. It's the reality. It's what's happening when we pick up the newspaper. I mean, it's oil at a negative price is an example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to start seeing examples that, you know, across the board. It's it's not a theory at this moment in time. It is. It, it's deflation is a, in large part a function of demand. Mm-hmm. Demand has collapsed because we're all indoors uh, watching Netflix. But I assume there are people who, looking forward and anticipating the amount of government spending we're going to have to see in the U.S., Europe, and so on, they're saying, well, okay, but wait a second. And, you know, because these are people who, more than you, think that uh, deficit spending is inflationary, right? Uh, and so there must be people saying, okay, but wait a second, we still have to worry about inflation and that should hold down um our government spending right now um i guess what you're saying is look you personally richard vague believe that uh the deficit spending is less inflationary than people think but b even if it is highly inflationary uh right now we should welcome the inflationary effect we sure should i mean simplistically you know if if spending was at 22 trillion dollars a year and it's now collapsed to 18 trillion or 19 trillion or 20 trillion. You know, we shouldn't even begin to worry about inflation until that government spending has fully filled that gap and gotten us back to 22 trillion. And unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. It'd be nice if it did. So I think any concern about it, you know, I don't want to I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it's misplaced concern at this moment. So your view is, you know, when people say, uh, oh, man, this $2.2 trillion, that was just the first. We're going to see installment after installment of this. You're, you're like, bring it on. That's exactly what we need. Uh, the government should spend as carefully as it can, given, given the, uh, the sense of immediacy, but it should spend pretty freely. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think at least another trillion or two is in order, perhaps more than that. Uh, it's needed. And then the rest will depend on what we see about the extent to which the economy uh, revives of its own accord as lockdown eases and whether lockdown can be eased enduringly without. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it depends on the slope of the restoration. You know, Mm -hmm. if if we can only get out half as much as we were otherwise, if restaurants are such that, you know, they can only accommodate half as many tables. Etc. Etc. Right. It, it it that that's a barrier to full restoration of spending. So, you know, if that if that slope persists for, you know, a couple of years, that's very different than if it only persists for, you know, six months. But the government should keep picking up the slack, in your view. Regardless, I, I, I believe that, and I hope they will. I know that will continue to be politically difficult. Okay. Well, thank you, Richard. Anything else you want to say that we haven't covered? No, thank you for the opportunity. I always enjoy these, and uh, best wishes to you. Stay safe and stay healthy. Okay, let me mention your books again, A Brief History of Doom, 200 Years of Financial Crises. A lot of data there, and a lot of data in in, uh, the next economic disaster as well, uh, which is, that's the earlier book, right, of the two? 
It is. The um, And then Delancey places your newsletter. People should subscribe to that. Uh, and thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you.